Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of the Fort Wainwright Community Spouses Club for this episode. I have with me today Destiny Huff, and I would love for you to share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. I'm Destiny Huff. I am a mental health therapist and a special education parent advocate. I'm also a military spouse. I have two sons. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'd love for you to start by telling us some of those unique life stressors that our military families face that's different than a lot of their civilian counterparts. A lot of times I always start with the fact that when we talk about military children, it's its own unique culture. A lot of people think, you know, that soldiers are no longer leaving their families for periods of a time. They're no longer deploying. And that's not true. Children often have to be away from their service member. And then they often have to be in single parent households while, depending on their age, tackling all types of responsibilities, deployments, trainings, relocation. So each branch of service has their different amount of time you spend at duty stations. And so the duty station, you know, is the location on the base where their um, service member is working. So they could move every 18 months, every two years, every three years. If the parent is going to school and they go with them nine months. I did that as a military brat. Having those frequent relocations and changing and leaving their friends, being away from their extended family, you know, those are all things that military children have to face. Stepping into new school settings, having to make new friends, get used to new teachers, get used to new locations, a very different dynamic than I think most civilian children who have parents that have jobs that keep them in the same location have to deal with. Definitely, I feel like a unique stressor. And yes, there are still deployments and separations happening. So I love that you highlighted that. Since we're really focusing on talking about families that have special needs children, are there different stressors for them? Oh, absolutely. Talking about our special needs or families with disabilities, what you're referring to is them having to not only relocate, find a primary care manager, but a lot of time find those specialty providers. And if you're in TRICARE Prime, that means you need a referral. And so you're having to meet with this primary care provider first, right, which could take three to four weeks. Then you're having to request the referral. Then they have to put the referral in, TRICARE has to approve it. The other side of that is a lot of families, even when enrolled in EFMP, the saying is that go to a duty station that has the services. Well, unfortunately, especially after COVID and with a lot of things going on, those providers are not always open. More common is they have long wait lists. So now my child is going through this transition period and they're not getting any of their services. So that is a lot more stress on the military family because I'm trying to figure out how to do these services as ho at home as the parent while adjusting to a new location. The child's trying to adjust to the new location and the service member's adjusting to a new role and position. So there's that added layer of those different services. And um, I'm an autistic son, so 
I know that transition and what that can look like, you know, you can be as prepared as you like to think, right? Calling ahead of time, utilizing the um, autism case manager that comes along with being enrolled in EFMP and TRICARE, but it all depends on the service providers having availability. So with all of the stressors, how does that really impact the special education process? Yeah, and it definitely does. And so even what I'm talking about with the specialty care providers, we're asked with the assumption that you have a child that's not even school age. So let's say that you have a child that has a disability and a diagnosis and a school age and they have a 504 or an IEP plan. That means that now you're having to make sure that their 504 and IEP is up to date prior to the move. Then once you make the move, you're having to make sure that you have a physical copy to provide to the schools so that they're aware of the services your child needs. And then you have to hope that they have the services to provide for your child. Because one of the things that I think a lot of parents that do know about the military child compact, they think you know, okay, that guarantees my child this. What that does is it means that the school has to, you know, attempt to provide comparable services to what's in the 504 plan and IEP because they can't guarantee that they have to provide the exact services because every location is different. So I think a lot of times military families are not aware of that and they think that that layer is there, but it's just not possible because with every state, and district, the funding and things are different. Let's say I do get the providers, I do get the services in place, but now how is my child's transition going to be into the school and are they going to follow their 504 and IEP and have the services and supports to help them be successful in the school setting? It's a lot to think about and tackle. In a previous podcast, we talked about this idea of homesteading and some of our military families trying to stay in one particular location because maybe that location that they're at has fantastic services. In some of your research, I thought was really interesting. You talked about neurodiversity, neurodivergent, and neurotypical. Can you talk with us a little bit about what those mean and maybe why are they important for us to know? So where neurodiversity, neurodivergent, and neurotypical came from is this mindset that let's just focus on the fact that individuals think differently, behave differently, operate differently, and that they may need more support in some areas than others may need. So neurodiversity is just focusing on the fact that everyone's mind is different. The way they think is distinct, and it may not be the typical way others view thinking. So specifically when you're talking about autism, for example, autistics tend to see things in black or white. And so they need to know why, they need to know that gray, and they sometimes have to be taught that concept. And so, like I said, my son is autistic, and then I was actually late diagnosed autistic because you know we have that similarity in thinking. Then when you talk about being neurodivergent, you're talking about this umbrella of different terms and individuals, and it's individuals whose brain diverges from the typical. Again, we go back to how they think. So under that umbrella, a lot of people just automatically think autism. But under neurodivergence, we're talking about individuals who are autistic, have ADHD, have OCD, OCPD, which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. 
So there's a lot of terms under that umbrella because it means that when we go back to that brain function and the level of which our brain functions, the way in which different levels of chemicals are going through the brain. And then neurotypical is individuals that have what society would consider the typical brain. These are your non-diagnosed individuals who are able to see that gray all the time or don't think in a particular way. They don't socialize in a particular way. It's easier for them to adapt to social situations. Again, when you're talking about autism or ADHD, maybe it's easier for them to sit down. Maybe they don't hyper-focus or hyper-fixate as much. They have what society considers typical. And we're talking about military families and children. We're referring to our military children that maybe you're not on an IEP, don't have a 504 plan, aren't having any struggles in the academic or educational setting other than their typical, oh, I've moved up a grade, I'm learning new things. So that's what those terms mean. And they're so important because everyone grows up. And so what's happening is our autistic children and our children with ADHD and OCD and OCPD, they've grown up and they're adults now. And they're saying, hey, I'm a person and I think differently. And I feel like you should look at the way in which I think it operate as being who I am and being a strength instead of a deficit. And so it's looking at a more strength-based model again. And we talk about pathologizing, not making it a deficit. I think it's so important to talk about those different terms and see it as a strength versus always looking at it as a challenge. I I like to say challenge instead of weakness. I don't like that term personally. <laughs> and so I just, I think that's great. And you know, the other part you were talking about the neurotypical child or adult, I always think to myself, we all have little idiosyncrasies or little nuances about our personality our behaviors that we do. It's interesting to just talk about, have that perspective that we're all different. We all think differently. We all behave differently. And looking at those as just how we, we're we built, I think that's important. And I think it's important for our children to know that because, you know, most kids, they they don't want to be different. They want to be like all the other kids. And so as soon as there's something a little different about them, that's hard for a lot of our kids. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk with us a little bit about what are the more common mental health diagnoses that you may see in children. And I know you highlighted autism and ADHD, but there's some others and so I'd love for you to kind of talk about those with us. I was in the school setting as a mental health professional um, working with educators, and I've been in the child development center settings on the bases, the CDCs, working alongside the trainer and the early childhood educators. When we talk about diagnosis in children, ADHD and autism, you know, the CDC just released a new report on autism, and they're seeing an uptick in diagnosis. That was a big thing because parents are now gaining more of an understanding of it. Professionals are gaining, you know, more of an understanding of it. And the diagnosis is increasing for that. But autism, ADHD, and then anxiety and depression. So anxiety is comorbid with ADHD and autism a lot. And typically, that's where we start to see some of those symptoms start to manifest. 
is that anxiousness and nervousness, doing tasks, not doing tasks correctly, not doing tasks perfectly, interacting with others. Sometimes because of the lack of supports or services identified yet or available or understanding for the child themselves and the adults involved, you start to see some of that depression of why am I not doing what my neurotypical peers are doing? Why am I not accomplishing these goals? Because a lot of times adults have the capacity, sometimes accidentally, to kind of say like, well, you see that this person is doing this, or you were able to do this yesterday. Why can't you do this today? ADHD, autism, anxiety, and depression are some of those common mental health diagnoses that you may see in children. And when you start recognizing those signs, you know, one, the biggest thing I say is it's important for educators, for administrators, for parents to receive trainings on mental health, have an understanding of what it is and what it looks like. Specifically, we're seeing a lot of individuals say like, I didn't know ADHD present like that. So specifically in girls, ADHD is underdiagnosed in female born individuals, you know, and it's female presenting individuals and it's just what it is. It's underdiagnosed in our minority communities, you know, same with autism, underdiagnosed for female-born individuals. Research is showing this. So getting those trainings on how it presents, specifically, there's been a shift in the community again because those children are now adults, right? They have expressed in maybe the way they identify as being saying they're autistic instead of having autism. But another thing is that the levels, so when you're diagnosed with autism, there's level one, two, three, and one is supposed to justify high support needs, one low support needs. And adults in the autism community have kind of expressed like, I might be diagnosed with level one, which in the past has been considered high functioning. They are like, but when I'm struggling with a transition or dysregulated, I'm not. So that's what we mean about that education on those diagnoses and what that looks like. Because what happens is you get that stigma attached of, well, they're level one, right? So they should be operating a certain way. And that's just not true. So I always say when you are talking about those mental health diagnoses, they're all, in my opinion, on a spectrum. All the diagnoses are. And some days are better days and some days are not so good days. And so being able to recognize those in the school setting and the home setting is really important because especially for our military children, the parents are going to be their best line of defense because they're the ones moving with them. If they're educated on they're able to really advocate for their child once they get into those new settings. It is a spectrum and you can be at times lower functioning than you are higher functioning depending on what those stressors are that are right there and then, and with transitions being one of those times where they're very high. So let's talk about for our educators, what are some tools or tips that they could utilize when they're working with children in the school setting? A lot of times when you're getting ready to request an evaluation for children for that are on IEPs or 504s, the first thing that comes up is informal observation. I'm big on data collection. So for the educators, when you start seeing a child struggling or having some challenges, start an informal observation. Start collecting data on when you're noticing them struggle. Is it during transitions? Is it only during math? Are they struggling whenever they're in their specials? So PE and music, but they're not having any struggles specifically in the classroom setting with you. 
So collecting data on that is a big one. Communicating with parents about what you're seeing, what the struggles are, you know, asking the parents, hey, you know, I'm noticing that they're having a hard time after lunchtime. Do you notice this at home? Is this common because of the eating and lack of mobility and getting up and moving? Or the opposite, we're talking about like our ADHD kiddos, you know, is the struggle, have you noticed that they seem to struggle with sitting down for a certain amount of time? What can we do to adjust? So obviously look at the specific struggle the child is having, attack one at a time. So a lot of times what I see too in the school setting is like, there's seven things that we want to address and we're going to attack all seven right now. It's not possible. The, the child is trying to learn something new. And so take your biggest one, I always say rank them, and then start from there. Another thing is receiving professional development, requesting professional development, seeking out your own professional development on mental health diagnosis, on neurodivergence, and understanding how to support them in a neuroaffirming way. And so a neuroaffirming way is supporting them without trying to change them. And so what I mean by that is if I have a kid that has ADHD in the classroom and they're able to sit and complete their work, but then that's when maybe the distractions start. Well, hey, can they walk in the back of the classroom with a fidget in their hand? That way they're not sitting there and distracting their peers, right? What is a way to support them that helps them thrive in the classroom without making them feel other or less than? And then always, uh, I'm always big on social emotional development, social emotional language, any type of check-in with somebody that they support. You'll be amazed at how often kids' day is determined by that morning. And sometimes it's accidental. Like sometimes they do something and they get in trouble right before they walk through the door. But then they have, you know, Mrs. Harrison to talk to and they like Mrs. Harrison. And so they get to chat with her and they get to talk about why they're upset and frustrated. They get to work through it. And then they head to the classroom and they have a great day. So just considering things like that. And then when we talk about social skills, I always like to bring this one up, especially for school settings, making sure they're neuroaffirming. And what I mean by that is, we don't have to teach them, you know, don't talk about Pokemon all the time because you love Pokemon, but you're not going to have friends like that. But that's not true. They're going to have friends that like Pokemon. Instead, let's teach them that when you're talking about Pokemon, if that person doesn't want to talk about Pokemon, then you can choose to exit the conversation. At the same time, you can see what they like and you can see if you choose to have a conversation with them because you like it because as adults, you do that. Somebody's trying to engage us and we don't care for the topic. We're not going to sit there and just listen to it. We kind of like listen a little bit and then we find a way to just slide ourselves out of the conversation. So that's what that neural affirming piece is, teaching them how social interactions can be, but letting them still be them. So that's my recommendations when we're talking about, you know, tips for the educators. So since we're talking about tools and we're talking about tools and tips for educators, Let's transition to parents. What could parents be doing in the home setting to maybe even reinforce some of the things that are being done in the school setting? Yeah, so a big one, again, that communication and check-in, I always say that goes across all continuums. No matter what the person's role is in that child's life, communicating is so key. So sometimes as parents, we can get a little scary of communicating things that we're seeing at home but you know sometimes and this is common actually with autistic children where 
they might be more dysregulated at home because they're spending so much time basking, which is engaging in neurotypical behavior in the classroom setting. And the parent is kind of leery of saying something, but it's important to do that because then it's like, okay, well, maybe still we need to tweak some of those supports. A big one is checking in. I love that my most of my sons go to the after school center on the base. And one of the things when the, we did the orientation that the director said was, hey, make sure when you get them, you're asking them how their day was. Because if something came up, if they had a negative interaction, we want to know about that now because it just happened and it's easier to address to make sure to prevent it because they're really big on like no bullying. And so I thought that was excellent because that's something that parents should just do in general is check in, see how your child's day was. I'm a big proponent of asking them, what was the best thing that happened in your day? What was the worst thing that happened in their day? Is there something you'd like to change in your day? And what I noticed with my kids who are in a, you know, a great school setting right now, the biggest thing they'll say is like, well, I wish that we could play a game or it'll be something at home. It wouldn't even be school related, <laughs> which is a positive for me as a parent because I know they're in a great school setting and that the supports for them are working. Another thing is social emotional education. A lot of parents don't recognize that you can do this young. So you don't have to wait till your child is five years old even. Start when they're babies, reading these emotion books, looking at this face means happy, this one means sad, this one means mad. Start working with them early to be able to feel comfortable to express emotions. A big thing that I noticed is that sometimes as adults, because we don't know how to articulate it, we forget that they haven't even had the chance to learn how to articulate it. So sometimes you might miss state the emotion they're having for something else. For example, I explained to my son how one time I was so happy he had said something in, about me as a mom that I got teary-eyed. And he was like, oh, are you sad? And I was like, no, sometimes when people are so so happy and overwhelmed, they can get teary-eyed or cry. You know, it's not just a sad emotion or sometimes people are angry, they can cry. You know, so talking about those different emotions and how they can impact and then ask them, what do they do? Okay. Cause that's a big thing for them because they might say, Oh, like my son was like, well, when I'm happy, I just smile. Like he looked at me so confused. Like, what do you mean? But that's good to know. And then, but he also said when I'm uncomfortable too, sometimes I'll smile. And so that was good to know too, right? Because that can be seen as disrespect. And so it's important to know that. Another thing is education. And when I say that, know your child's diagnosis. Know their diagnosis and know how it impacts them. A lot of times you get very general education on diagnosis and we try to diagnose and they're like, okay, here's some websites you can look at. It's gonna tell you everything you need to know. But how does that present in your child? What does that look like for your child? Um, with our son, we had a stereotypical view of autism. And so we had no, we knew he had anxiety, but we had no idea that he was autistic because we did not have that view. Same with myself. We had one meeting where we were with the psychologist and presenting all the information. And the first thing she said was like, so mom and dad, what do you think about autism? And we were like, what? Because she, that was her area. That was her experience. And so she was really able to say like, this is why. And then that's when we started learning. We were like, oh yeah, no, definitely. But you have to understand it and then you have to understand how it presents for that. And then consistency. So routine and structure. And this is difficult for military families, right? Because maybe your service member is supposed to leave on Monday. All of a sudden they leave on Friday. 
and you're like, okay, they left earlier than they were supposed to. Now, how do we do this? So when we talk about consistency and structure, we're really talking about keeping their routine as consistent as possible outside of that set like, oh, we have to do this at nine o'clock, this at 11, this at 12. We're more so talking about, okay, in the morning time, they get up and eat breakfast. Then they get dressed for school. Then they go to school. Then they go to after school center. Um, And this is my kids' schedule. They come home and then they have dinner. Then they have kind of like free time where they can do what they like. Then we have what's called family time. Family time, we do an activity together and then each of them picks out a book and then we read the book, all of us, no tablets, no electronics. And that's what family time is for that hour before they go to bed. And then they go to bed. So that's my kids' routine. That routine happens whether dad is present or not. That's their routine, right? And then, of course, you know, you have bath time in there too. And then they also have a nighttime snack, which they get before family time. They know that. That's their routine. And they understand that that does not change when they're with mom and dad. Now, with grandpa, I teach a free-for-all. So it's important to, that's what I mean by that routine, because sometimes I know military families will be like, well, Destiny, how? Like, I don't know his schedule. And so part of that is you create this routine when the service member is there. And then that way, whether they're gone or present, everybody knows the routine. I think that's great. And I know within our parent support programming that we do at MSEC, we always talk about do routine things routinely. So routine is huge and very helpful for not just the children, but I feel like parents too. So what about tools for our mental and behavioral health professionals or counselors that are working in settings where there's therapy, you know, kids that are going to therapy? I think that's important too. And I don't know if we talk enough about that. Yeah. So again, communication and check-in, the therapist communicating, things they're seeing with the parent, but also, you know, supporting the parent and communicating with the school. So I think a lot of times, because we do have those related service providers, specialty service providers, we forget that when we are trying to address concerns in the school setting in particular, we can have them draft letters about what they're working on and tools and things like that. So so therapists being open to providing supports to the parents to provide to the school, you know, in a in a written format. Another one, professional development, not just competency on neurodivergence. There's competency on diagnosis. We get that drilled into us. But this neuroaffirming piece is new. A lot of practitioners um, still have a very old school mindset when it comes to autism and ADHD in its presentation. Getting training on neuroaffirming practices, because a lot of parents, especially those, the young parents, if you have a lot of young parents when it comes to the military lifestyle, they are coming into um, the diagnosis learning about neuroaffirming. So they're looking for practitioners that understand that concept and understand the acceptance of their child and who they are as having this neurodivergent mind. And then also education and competency on military families the struggles that they go through, the challenges that they face, how that impacts them in their mental health, the children, the spouses, the service members, because each has their own piece and it's going to have an impact for each one of them. And when you combine that with a mental health diagnosis, you're going to need a lot of support. And so they have to not just understand mental health and, you know, neuroaffirmative practices, 
They have to understand military culture. They have to understand sometimes still even in 2023 hesitation to seek out mental health services. Um, they have to understand hesitation to accept mental health diagnosis, even for the children and the spouse, because, you know, I'm rolling the EFMP and there's still that stigma and thought process of well, where will we be stationed? These are very real things. And so the therapist has to have that understanding when working with these families about why they think the way they think. And that's attributed to military culture. And then lastly, social emotional education, always. I'm always big on therapists doing social emotional education, using books. I do it with my clients. Um, I do it with my kids. But using books to teach them the language to communicate how they're feeling and thinking. And then working with the parents to teach them the same thing. Um, and there's really been a big push for that incorporation with children in the past few years because, uh, you know, we're already reading to them, right? And we always be a read to them, read to them, read to them. So why not make sure what you're reading to them is relevant? And I find that my kids love those kind of books. So they, they pick them out to read them. And I notice sometimes they'll pick out particular ones based on how they're feeling. And they don't say that. But I noticed like, okay, you seem kind of down today. And then you picked out the sad book today. So, okay, I, I'm, I'm understanding. I really liked all of your tips and tools for therapists and the communication between them and, and the parents. And I really would like to just highlight you when you, you were talking about them also helping support what's happening in the school setting. Because one of the things that I know I've seen is your child has a 504 IEP and they're seeing uh, individuals in the school setting, but they also have providers or therapists outside of the school. And it's how do you create this consistency and continuity between the two, whether it's an OT, whether it's the, the psychologist, the behavioral therapist, whatever. This is happening in school. This is happening over here outside of school. How do I make sure that the two come together and we're doing the same thing? So do you have any additional resources for our military families? Is there anything extra that they could be looking into? Yeah, so I mean, always, I'm always going to say, you know, military one source, they have a wealth of information. Obviously, the Military Children Education Coalition has a wealth of information Looking at the military interstate compact, you know, big three is important because education, that education piece and going from one state to another state. Then we're talking about our families with disabilities. Um, Partners in Promise is an important organization to look at because they specifically focus on advocacy laws and support and like having an impact in that realm for military children in special education. And then another one, EFM Voice, when we're talking about our EFMP families, you know, exceptional family member program, they have a lot of good supports and programs and groups specifically based on your child's disability. So they have one for autism. So you're talking about being in a group specifically with other military spouses of all branches that have an autistic child and they talk about how they navigate um, EFMP. Sometimes they even will give examples of someone saying, hey, I need this service provider in this location where we're going to be stationed. And they're able to say, oh, these are some good supports. 
I would like all of those resources. And then on Partisan Promise, you'll also find an article on social emotional books for military kids. And it gives kind of a mini breakdown of like by age and name, but it's got some great books for military children to address their social emotional. And these are books that, you know, I've recommended to my child's teacher and they've ended up using it for the entire grade. So it's it's beneficial not just for parents, but it can be used for counselors and it can be used for educators. Those are some fantastic resources and really great information for parents to know uh, because there is a lot out there. So we know that, you know, one of the hardest parts of advocating for your child is knowing where to begin. As we close out talking about such an important topic, where do you begin to advocate for your child? Well, I think the first thing and I'm going to say, and this is going to, some people are like, what? You're a whole professional. Start with the internet, you know, Googling the, what you think the diagnosis can be. The reason I say that is because there's so much information out there and there's so much information to the point now you'll even have, well, they'll say comparison and they'll be comparing the symptoms and showing you how they overlap and all of those things. So start with that to kind of get your foothold in what does this look like? What could this mean? Once you start doing that, you go to your child's primary care provider, you request a referral to the psychologist, okay? Because at the end of the day, they're going to be the one that does the formal assessments to determine the diagnosis. Once you're provided with that diagnosis, Read through those assessments, but also start to identify what does this look like for my child? Because again, it's a spectrum. Once you figure out what it looks like for them, then you can really start advocating for them, especially if you're thinking about them entering into the school setting. What do you notice at home? Do they have a difficult time transitioning from the house to the store? Do they have a difficult time transitioning from playing with Legos to coming to eat dinner? What are you noticing? And stereotype versus reality is a big one. When you're talking about advocating for your child, there's always going to be this stereotypical view of how people view a diagnosis. And that's why you learn how it appears with your child so that you can say, well, I understand that you feel like they may need this support, but my child actually doesn't struggle with that. An example I always give is my son does not struggle with fire alarms. That loud noise and following the class and and doing what they have to do during fire drills does not have an issue with it. But a lot of times they stereotypically think he does because he's autistic. And so the first thing they say is like, mom, how does he do with drills? That's what I mean by how does it impact your child? The next thing is, you know, recognizing your own biases and challenging that. So when we're talking about the trauma parents, trauma educators, trauma therapists, what are your own bias? Oh, well, this can't be like this, or this doesn't look like this, or I know this, or I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've never seen this. Yeah, that, those, I'm not saying those things aren't true, but I'm saying recognize that, because sometimes that hinders you from really doing the best job that you typically do in supporting them. And it happens with everyone. As information comes and goes, as we continue to learn, as the language continues to change, you're going to have that happen. I had a supervisor say once for therapists, the day that I, that you stop attending trainings and stop trying to learn is the day you need to step out of the field. And so I think that's how we always have to approach this is that it's always new. We're always learning. So approach it that way. The other thing is consult with mental health professionals. 
So when you're seeing these concerns, you're seeing these behaviors, even again, whether you're the educator or the parent, or if you're a mental health professional that's not as familiar with autism or ADHD, um, because typically we're a little well-versed in anxiety and depression, and that's kind of our, you know, bread and butter when we start out, then consult. Talk about that, address the concerns so that you can continue to support the child. Ask questions about the diagnosis and how that can impact the child in the school setting. And lastly, my biggest way, the biggest thing I say when it comes to advocating for a child is remember it's about the child. At the end of the day, you want the child to be successful and they don't yet know what they need. And so you advocate for them until they can use their voice to advocate for themselves. I think so many important points that you made in there. And I love how you, really you talked about the biases that you, we have. And I I would just like to say as a parent and someone who also has a child that has a disability is that the fear as well as a parent. I think sometimes we see something's different and we're fearful of what that potentially means. You know, and now I have an autistic child. What does that mean for them as they grow and develop into uh, their teen years and their adult years? Same with ADHD, anxiety. You know, for me, I know I had to overcome this feeling of like sadness and fear for what that means for my child, but then also knowing that they're going to be okay and I'm just going to have to be their first and best advocate in everything that they do, like you said, until they can do it for themselves and then still be there, still be there if they need, <laughs> still be there if they need mom to, to come, you know, come in the wings, you know. Right. No, but you, but you said, use the way you said that is very important and necessary. And it, it's, you know, and that's something I want to stress to parents. And I say this as, as a mother of an autistic child, and I say this as somebody who Late diagnosed autistic and ADHD myself. Don't be afraid to grieve what you thought it would look like, you know. And, and you know, because as as mental health professionals, a lot of times that's what we work and help parents do. You know, it's okay. Um, and a lot of times, I think that you don't get to take the time to do that because you're military families and you're constantly moving and doing a lot of things. But it's okay because everyone has, and every parent knows this. You have this perception of the life your child is going to have regardless you know and i'm not even talking about if your child has a disability just in general like you know if you think your child is going to do a sport and then they're like yeah i don't like sports right so you have to really work past that and then you know while you're doing that then you work towards okay so i still have this amazing little being who relies on me and needs my support and so now that i have put that i've done that and i've processed that now let me do this Absolutely. I think all great pieces of advice. I just want to say thank you so much. I think this was an amazing conversation and so relatable for our military families. I just want to thank you for sharing all of that information with us today. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the Fort Wainwright Community Spouses Club for supporting this episode 
and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind.